Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. When I began this leg of my journey into the entertainment industry, you may find it interesting to know that my background before this was all commercial real estate and that I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I'm from Los Angeles, but I moved to Atlanta six years ago. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. It's a world-class city with a huge economic future as a center of commerce for a global economy. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Today on the podcast, I get to speak on one of my favorite topics, ethics. Yes, I'm into it, and you might be too, especially after listening to this guest. Dr. Edward Queen is my special guest today. Hailing from the Center for Ethics at Emory University, Dr. Queen runs the D. Abbott Turner Program in Ethics and Servant Leadership and also serves as the university's coordinator for the Organizational and Corporate Ethics Program. Thank God for Dr. Queen. Okay, holding a law degree alongside both a master's and a PhD in divinity, Edward Queen is a well-spoken expert on the human condition and the myriad existential threats we pose on ourselves. But what makes him even more interesting is his background in international peacebuilding. Dr. Queen has some impressive credentials, and I had an excellent time picking his brain in this podcast. He did a little picking of mine, too, which was unexpected, but really challenging and very enjoyable. Don't tune out. Tune in. Your brain needs this conversation. Sit back, relax, and think. All right, welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. This is Ryan Millsap. Glad to welcome our guest, Dr. Edward Queen, who directs leadership programs at the Center for Ethics at Emory University. Dr. Queen, welcome. Uh, my pleasure to be here, and um, please call me Edward. Well, Edward, thank you. You know, a lot of our listeners are intellectually minded, but they all might not know what a Center for Ethics even does. Give us kind of a brief on why Emory would have a Center for Ethics and the kind of things you might study there. Interestingly, the Emory University Center for Ethics is one of the broadest based in terms of what we do of, of ethics centers in the U.S. Most ethics centers in the U.S. overwhelmingly are, are biomedical or bioethics centers um, for a lot of reasons because that's where the money is. Others are more focused on a particular area, whether it's public policy, engineering, etc., the, the Center for Ethics at Emory is, is really broad. We have uh, one of the world's preeminent 
neuroethics programs. Um, as far as we know, the only formal arts and ethics program in the world, as far as we can tell. Um, again, with the strength, given that it's Emory University, we have a, a market strength in, in, in biomedical ethics and bioethics in general. Um, and then the programs I run um, really focused on ethics and servant leadership, on really shaping and forming the next generation of community leaders, the people who can be involved um, no matter where their professional role may take them, but, but also to recognize that they have an obligation to, um, to build up their community, um, whether it's a local community like Atlanta, region, country, um, wherever their passions and skills um, take them. Um, we're currently building out a, a major program in, in food ethics, and then also kind of ongoing work in organizational and corporate with a developing program in ethics and artificial intelligence. And if you don't mind, Ryan, I want to get back to your other question about the why. One of the things I really invite people to think about all the time is really, you know, when you say you want a good professional, you want somebody to be a good doctor, you're not solely interested in technical proficiency. I mean, if the physician's going to operate on you, yes, you want the physician to be technically proficient, but you don't care how technically proficient she or he's going to be if the surgeon decides at the last minute, you know, hey, this guy's got five perfectly good organs, I can take them out and give them to five other people. Um, so when we talk about a good professional... I, would, I talk, definitely wouldn't like that in a surgeon. Right, so when we talk about a good professional, we talk about good anything, there's always this kind of ethical component embedded in it. And what the Centers for Ethics do is really help to infuse, help to, to incorporate um, that ethical component into our thinking or into our acting, ideally, which is really the goal. It's not just knowing what the good is, it's doing the good, but really to kind of embed that, infuse that into people's personal professional, and, and communal lives. You said it's not just about knowing the good. It's about doing the good. That made me think of Aristotle. Right. And Aristotle's had a huge impact on my life, uh, beginning when I was about 19 years old. And one of the things that I always loved about Aristotle is that he believed that the good of society fundamentally began with good human beings. When you think about what it means to be a good human being, how do you start to direct young people who come to you and say, I want to be a good human being? Where do I begin? Well, I mean, I think you hit on the first component there. Um, you know, somebody has to be willing to ask that question. Um, and you're going to get students at different places. You're going to get some who aren't um, in a position yet where they've really asked the question in any real and meaningful way. Um, you're going to get students who are kind of a step further and you know, recognize that there is such a thing as a good human being, a good life, and are struggling to, um, to, to figure that out. And, and then you have those that, that, that may be further on the way. And, and I, so my kind of first simple answer to your question is a teacher 
has to be willing and able to make the time to meet, to find out where a student is and where that student is on, on, on her or his trajectory. That's why teaching, I would argue, um, is, is really not just about imparting information, though, though that's essential and it's key, um, but, but teaching is also about formation. It's, it's really about developing a person. So the first step is, is the student has to want to move towards becoming a good person, developing a life worth living, shall we say. Um, and then you help them think about how they engage with others, with the wider world, in a way that um, gives them the tools to, to think about how, what is an appropriate action, what is an appropriate behavior in this situation. Part of it is developing certain practices, um, a practice of being able not to necessarily leap in, um, a practice of, of being willing to figure out what's going on, um, and to think carefully about the fact that the good, what I ought to do here, is not always going to be, and quite often isn't necessarily, what's seemingly good for me. You know, that's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us. Um, but it's particularly a challenge, I think, today, Ryan, where we have an overwhelming cultural reality that can't see the value in a human being that hasn't been monetized. And mm. I think helping students to see that you can be valuable, in fact, you can be more valuable, maybe even most valuable, in ways that aren't monetizable. Mm-hmm. That makes me think of, do you know much about Henry Nouwen? Yeah, the, the, the theologian. And the theologian and all the writings that he did, um, kind of surrounding the work that he was involved with, with the mentally disabled. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are a few places as profound to explore about inherent worth than with those in our society that seemingly add no economic value. Right. What I was actually thinking about was, as you started to go down this road of thinking about ethics, it, it made me think of kind of a fundamental question, which I think is at the core of all ethics, and I'd be really fascinated to hear your take on this, especially since you have such a background in the study of theology, which is John Paul Sartre very famously said in Being and Nothingness that if there is no God, then anything is permissible. How do you process that from a foundation of ethics when you're dealing cross-culturally? Do you feel like fundamentally, if you're dealing with people that don't believe in ultimate realities and personalities the center of the universe, that it makes it difficult to find ethical common ground? A great question, um, and we could spend the next 35 hours on this. Um, let me kind of break 
my thinking about this down in, in to, to, to several components, if you don't mind. And, and part of it gets back to um, what I said earlier about you've got to, a teacher really has to grasp where a student is. And I try and deal with this in several ways. First, I, I don't believe anybody, almost anybody, doesn't think that there isn't some good. They may have grown up in, in a culture that's kind of what I call one of Mickey Mouse relativism. Um, but no. Um, you know, even robbers get aggravated if you steal from them. So whether you have a, a big T or small T conception of truth or a big G or small G conception of the good, you've got a conception of it. One of the examples I use, and, and I've been teaching since 1984, so 36 years, when, when students start asking me this question, you know, well, is there really such a thing? And, and I just stop and ask the question. I says, was slavery bad before people agreed it was bad? And in 36 years, I've only had one student say no. Right? And I said, well, the minute you're willing to make this claim that some things are bad, regardless of what anybody thinks about it, you've accepted the idea that there's some sort of kind of absolute morality. Right? Now, what it means, how you apply it, you know, all, all that's, you know, that, that, that may be a secondary set of questions. Right? But the first question is, is there such a thing as the good? whether it's a big G or little g in your mind, um, is a different question than what it is. And, and part of the challenge of dealing with students is that when you first start talking about this, they want to conflate the two. They think the mere fact that you say there's such a thing that's right and wrong automatically means that you know what it is. And I said, no, they're, they're different questions, right? So, so, so you've got that kind of meta type of conversation. And, and I think you can draw from their experience. I mean, you, you, when I talk, when people kind of start talking about cultural relativism, again, similar to the slavery question, I, I say, well, then, basically, the civil rights movement was wrong then, in your mind, because, you know, segregation and, and white supremacy was the culture in the South, so they sort of changed it. Well, when you kind of confront them with something hard like that, it brings their thinking up short. They have to kind of recognize that, well, no, I, I, I can't be, in, forgive the phrase, an absolute cultural relativist because I don't believe in it. So, so now, now we've got a start of a conversation. And then there's kind of a third level. And again, I mean, they can be different. You apply them different to different people. Um, but look, we all accept the fact that there have to be rules for us to live well together in society, right? And so even at the most basic level, if you believe there are no absolutes, um, if you believe there's no foundation for absolutes, you still have to recognize the fact that we need rules to live together. You, know, you don't want to have to step out of your door every morning and pick up the newspaper, assuming that anybody other than me does that, and worry about getting bashed in the head every minute of every day. 
know, so so again, it's 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 you know, you can you can kind of take a combination of arguments and and get people to start thinking into these things in different ways. So then there's a, you might separate then the practical from the theoretical, the people that are moved by the idea of the good and the people that are moved by the idea of a practical social contract, the way Rousseau wants to explore. Yeah. I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, the goal for me is to move them to at least at a bare minimum, though most of them are beyond that, entertaining the idea that there is such a thing as the good. But I can take it if people are just going to act correctly, no matter why they do it. You know? I agree with that. I mean, and I think Aristotle would too. I mean, he, yeah. he'd rather, he certainly would rather have a society of people who know how to act well, orthopraxy, right. than people that know how to think well or have beliefs, but don't know how to apply them. And so we have the orthodox that then fail in their action. And the orthoprax, if there's such a word, right? Right, yeah, there is. Their action, right? Yeah. And all day long, you'd trade a society of people who act well for, you know, over a society of people who only think well. I think that's just, you know, that I'm a, I'm a very practical philosopher. So for me, anything that doesn't actually apply to my ability to choose and live well as a human being, I have very little time for. Right. I mean, it's it's you know it may be fascinating, it may be interesting, but on some levels, it's it's not productive. But I think you know, a, a, kind of an add-on to that, a friendly amendment, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, the goal is both to is to bring them together. You know, you want people to to know the good in certain ways and practice it, but you always have to ask yourself the question, um, and and I think this kind of has an Aristotelian component to it as well, what happens when a good person is placed in a bad environment? So it's one thing to have internalized the practices and you may be able and willing to continue those in a bad environment. But it's going to be harder to do that if you haven't also internalized the philosophical, theological, intellectual underpinnings of why you ought to do the good. And I'll give you kind of a a weird example. Um, And it's a very recent one. Hoarding of toilet paper. I love ethics professors. This is fantastic. I mean, the shortage of toilet paper is not create or wasn't created because there wasn't enough toilet paper. It was created by the fact that people were afraid they wouldn't have toilet paper. Right now, if I recognize intellectually and mentally that you know this is a false shortage. And I know that by me going into Costco and buying two cases of toilet paper, I'm going to exacerbate the shortage. My inclination may be to not do that. I, I have a, may feel I have a duty, an obligation, not to enhance or exacerbate the problem. On the other hand, I'm going to damage myself 
by not buying toilet paper because everybody else is going out and buying toilet paper. You know, so so if I haven't deeply internalized the kind of understanding that I'm going to have to fight against what's a purely rational decision. I mean, if I'm a you know a rational maximizer um, in traditional economic theory, um, it's in my interest to buy toilet paper, even though doing so um, damages the, the the greater good, right? And so, what happens if people are just a kind of accustomed to a practice? Um, when the practice fundamentally harms you in a kind of minimal way. And, and I think that's it. I mean, you've got to have that, that kind of ability to make the articulations um, in these complicated situations. So, I, you know, I have this working theory about the human soul and the body and how they integrate. And, and the theory goes like this. I believe that the compass of the human soul, and I use soul in a very Aristotelian, integrated with the body kind of way, that the human soul body does its best compass thinking from the neck down. That the chest and the guts and the loins are actually the best ethical compass. And that the mind is really just a tool to get you to the destinations that are determined by the compass. How do you respond to that? What do you think um, about that working theory? I have to reflect, and, and, and I'm going to respond acknowledging that, well, actually, no, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to ask you to unpack that a little bit. Uh-huh. When you say that the that the, the 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 body is more the response mechanism, or at least maybe mm-hmm. even if I understood you correctly, the driving mechanism. What what are you trying to convey? What 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 what's your kind of fundamental point with that position? Well, fundamentally, I believe that the mind is an incredible tool, a powerful tool, a, a logic machine in many ways. But that fundamentally the mind, apart from the emotions and apart from the information that is gathered from the feelings that we, are, that we have in our body, that the mind fundamentally doesn't have enough information to make good decisions. And now I believe that in our modern society, we've, we've gotten so far away from a deep connectedness to feeling, right, the feelings that, are, that arise in our chest or our guts or our loins that are real and how to interpret those, that we make hugely misguided decisions such as maximization of, of uh, personal economic impact and believe that we are, quote, acting rationally, where if we believed fundamentally that the rational good could only be found if we had the information that was trying to be funneled to us by the neck down portion of our bodies, then we might fundamentally act in different ways, right? We might be much more connected to the earth and take that into account uh, economically in ways more profoundly than we do today. 
So it's a, you know, it's not a, it's not a theory that is easy to prove. It's a working theory that I have in trying to figure out how to live best as a human being, how to find fullness of life, how to find uh, Aristotle's true happiness and what that path entails. So a lot of my, let's say, spiritual exercise is really fundamentally focused on getting in tune with the messages that my soul body, this, this fundamental me, mm-hmm. is trying to tell me because I believe that my self is connected deeply into the fabric of the universe such that if I pay attention, the answers are there. Does that, I mean, does that give you some unpacking? I mean, obviously yeah, that's... No, no, that, 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 that's perfect. It's interesting because I'm going to make a statement and then I'm going to complicate it a little bit. Because my thinking on that, on the points you just made, would have actually gone in just the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this this may be somewhat more platonic or Socratic, but I think it's also Aristotle. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I tend to think or be convinced that it's really our passions and our ego um, that drive us to, 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 to making decisions that are um, incompatible um, or often, or, or at least many times, incompatible with the greater good, um, and that for me, it's 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 the mind that, again, to 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 use Plato's or Socrates's metaphor, that that that, that restrains um, the, the 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 horses um, of, of 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 passion um, and 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 ego. Um, but, but that said, I mean, I mean, I think, you know, if, if I hear you and understand you correctly, what, what you're trying to, to, uh, to, what you're articulating is that there's a much more, um, complex and integrative, um, vision or kind of reality to human existence, um, than, 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 than just a kind of, um, you know, rational economic maximizer. I mean, I mean, this kind of rational economic beings made up. Um, you know, it's like the, the the famous joke about the philosopher and the economist who get stranded on a on a deserted island, and they discover that a huge crate of canned goods have have landed there. They, you know, well, at least we have food, and they go, how we're going to open the cans and the philosophers, well, why don't we take a rock and sharpen it and we can burst the cans open with that? And the economist says, why? Why don't we just assume we have a can opener? You know, this kind of assumption you know, that, that, that we're rational human beings is, is bogus. I mean, we have passions, we have emotions, we have feelings. And it's not only about what's good for me. And... I think that kind of integrative understanding um, that there's something more out there um, 
and how do we grasp or grapple or incorporate that more into our thinking is is really what you're articulating now whether whatever metaphors any of us choose to to articulate that um you know is is is, is secondary but but yeah i i definitely you know regardless of how either one of us would articulate that understanding um i i definitely agree with 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 the place um we both would be going with it i mean fundamentally we're trying to get to you know what does it mean for me as a human being to be the most human and then what does it mean for us as a society right to be the most human on that on that idea you know we're in this really bizarre time right the time of the the age of corona Let's imagine that we had a president who might consult a center for ethics. And let's say that that president came to the center of ethics at Emory University. And Emory University said, well, you know, we think you should talk to Dr. Queen about this. And I say to you, all right, Edward, you got to prepare a message for the American people about how to ethically deal with the age of Corona. What do you tell them? Um, well, first thing I would tell them is that really, you really ought to talk to my colleagues, Kathy Kenlaw and Paul Report, Wolpe and Gerard Vaughn. Um, but um, I, I, uh, people who've actually been working on this with with Emory Healthcare and hospitals across across the country and, and other places. I'm gonna have I'm gonna I'm gonna ask my producers to write those names down because I want to talk to them too. Um, That'd be a I, fun I think, forum conversation, a roundtable. Oh, oh, they, they, they would be incredible. You know, it's, it's going to be my first response is going to be what I'm about telling people in positions of authority across the board. And the first thing is get your ego out of the way. This isn't about you. It's about what are your duties and obligations as someone who's responsible, at least as the president, for the well-being and good of the country. Two, in that position, you, again, and I I hate to kind of pull things from the news, but, but, but you have a duty to convince the people that by acting together, in constructive and productive ways, we can meet the challenges presented by this virus. And to do that, we're going to take the best knowledge and information and science there is, and recognizing that what we know is constantly in flux right now. It's a, it's a novel situation. And we're going to have to make adjustments based on new information as it comes in. That said, you know, we know that there's certain things that need to be done. Uh, we need to produce test kits. We need to produce test kits that work. We need to get the test kits to places that need it. And then, this again, this gets back to, to, to something I, I think I said earlier. 
is that when you make ethical decisions, facts matter, right? You know, you, you, you have to address the, the facts of the situation. Um, where are the places where the goods, respirators, whatever, are needed, and you have to get them there. Um, and you have to kind of call forth as as someone who's kind of a symbolic communicator um this kind of recognition that that we all have a duty to serve other people to serve the good of the country um whether it means wearing masks whether it means sheltering in place whatever it means and again if you want to use symbols you know you know in this situation at this time this is what it means to be a good American. Because you have a duty to your sister and fellow citizens. All right? We're all one. Um, now, that's much less theoretical than perhaps you, you, you were asking. Um, but, but I think you so have exactly, to... That's exactly what I was going for, which is, you know, the, the, what are the theories, the ideas? And, I mean, obviously, I think there's a whole bunch of praxis that can be explored, right? right. But, but fundamentally, what you're expressing are the beautiful messages that I think are not being well disseminated in America right now at a time when the social good requires – um, coordination of individual will. You're absolutely Which right. It's not an American. It's not an American strength, right? I mean, it's an American strength in war. But maybe this has been the first test of the American ability to pull together for their own good in a way that's not just economic or about their freedom. Right, because Americans obviously will pull together and fight tooth and nail and die with, you know, guns in their cold dead hands over freedom. But this is our first, maybe, you know, I've I've been trying to figure out when else we've faced this, other than maybe like the Great Depression, but even that was economically driven, so people could pull together and say, you know, we need to help each other. This is maybe our first true test of a non-economic nature. And it feels like right now the American collective consciousness isn't prepared or well-wired or well-trained for a crisis such as this. Do you think that's a good read? um, To some extent. I mean... uh, um, Robert Bella and and several colleagues, God, probably about thirty years ago or so, wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And and in the book, one of the things they say is that look, historically, um, Americans have had kind of four basically four moral languages. Um, one is, is a kind of biblical language. Um, it's been a while, so I hope I can reconstruct all four of them here. 
Um, one is what they call kind of civic republicanism. Um, the, the third is um, a kind of, you know, it's not their language, but, but a kind of economic individualism. And, and the fourth is kind of an expressive individualism. You know, I, I've got to be me. And these languages have, have always kind of interpenetrated. Um, you know, and, and, and I think they're there, but they, they still exist. But, but, but even 30 years ago, you know, they were saying that they were concerned because really the language of expressive individualism had become kind of the, the overwhelming moral language. Um, you know, I, I do things, you know, and, and it's fed by consumerism. I mean, my identity is based upon what I buy, what kind of car I drive, what clothes I wear. Um, you know, and you know, it's the so, church of Kanye West. I, I I don't do popular culture, so I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, Kanye is a really a interesting. Uh, ethical, moral evolution. I think that's a study in and of himself, and I think probably what that's what he wants to be. But he might be the um, one of the key examples of American ethos. Yeah. But, but that's for a different discussion, and we we'd have to loop in somebody who is a uh, pop pop culture professor. Yeah. But 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 I do think the language, particularly the language of both the biblical language, but 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 also kind of a more shared language of civic republicanism is there, um, and I think you see it um, very actively in in practice um, in people's communities and in, in people who reach out. Um, you know, it's, I don't think it's gone. The challenge has been, or the challenge for me, um, is that. We currently lack individuals um, who are visible, who are capable and willing to to, to call on that language, um, to kind of um, pluck the kind of patriotic heartstrings um, that I think is there. I mean, I mean, the guitar is there. Someone just has to play that guitar. I like that. That's a wonderful analogy. Yeah, if the if the guitar is there, then any song can be played. It's just a question of whether or not we have anyone with the skill. Right. And that's good stuff. Tell me, um, you know, we're running out of time, unfortunately. I'd love to do this again if you're ever up for it, because I think we could talk about a hundred different things for hours and hours and hours. But if I was to give you the ability to change one habit for everybody in American society. I mean, this is on the spot, but yeah. what habit would you give Americans, every American that they don't have today? Hmm. Probably one that I'm not as strong at as I wish that I were, um, but fortunately I've had a situation where I, reality where I've had to learn it. Um, I think I'd give everybody patience. And what do you mean by patience? What does patience look like to an ethicist? You know, I, I, I think patience involves both kind of a willingness to 
recognize first that we don't know everything, um, that not every problem is amenable to an immediate solution, not every desire ought to be immediately gratified, um, not every perceived slight ought to be responded to um, with a vicious tweet or, or whatever people do, um, that perhaps, you know, sometimes we need to just step back and recognize that it's not about the immediacy. It's not about quarterly reporting. It's not about getting it now. It's about what ought to be done and what ought to be accomplished in the midterm. You know, because mm-hmm. as Kane said, in the long term, we're all dead. That's right. <laughs> the, the near term, we don't know yet. But That's this right. issue of kind of time... You know, and, and I think temporality um, and the absence of kind of midterm temporal thinking is also part of, has helped create the problems we're experiencing here during this time. People mm-hmm. aren't willing to stockpile at least kind of medical equipment. People aren't willing to kind of recognize that the supply chain may be interrupted, and so we're not going to have just-in-time delivery. You know, recognizing that the immediate doesn't address a lot of contingencies that we don't have or we aren't thinking about, and that planning and patience and waiting may serve us well. Edward, you have a powerful mind and a reflective soul, and I appreciate you sharing both of us today. Oh, it was my pleasure, and thank you so much for giving me the, the opportunity. You're an incredible interlocutor, and it's, um, it's, it's been an incredibly gratifying experience. If someone wanted to find you, could they hunt you down on the interwebs, or would that be do – you, do you have any social media, or is it all just find the uh, Emory Center for Ethics? Emory Center for Ethics, and feel free to email me. What's your email? eQueen at emory.edu. Edward, thank you for joining us today on the Black Hall Podcast. What a pleasure. My pleasure, Ryan. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'll leave you guys with thoughts that I write on Instagram. Seek goodness and live in truth. Right your wrongs. Surround yourself with people doing the same. Now you are rich indeed. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.